Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. There are votes, and then there are votes. Once upon a time, Canada was almost split in two. Over 93% of Quebecers showed up to vote in the 1995 referendum, and 49.42% of them voted for sovereignty. That tiny margin of difference, the slightest shift in the public conversation, and history would have taken a different path. Any number of factors might have made the difference, but here's one that obviously turned votes. Just months before the referendum, news broke that Jacques Parizeau, the premier of Quebec, was caught saying on the down low that once Quebecers voted for sovereignty, they would be trapped like lobsters thrown into boiling water. Not a great slogan for the separatist movement. That's what a story like that can do. That's what political journalism can do. It can change history. Now, the journalist who actually broke that story, she would argue with me about that. In fact, she did. Happy Lesser Canadian Thanksgiving, people. Today, we are pulling an episode from the vaults for your holiday listening pleasure. And this one, well, it's uncanny. 
my conversation with Chantal Hibert, recorded over four years ago when we were heading into the last federal election. Well, it is uncanny how much of it applies exactly to our situation today. Some of what you're about to hear has me nodding my head at how true it all still is. And some of it has me shaking my head in frustration. Chantal Hébert has a much more humble, utilitarian view of the role of journalists than I do. I admire her clear-eyed practicality, but when I hear her say, hey, it's not like Canada can make any difference on climate change anyhow, well, I still feel like the frustrated teenager at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Anyhow, here it is. Here she is, my fave of the pundit class, Toronto Star columnist and CBC political panelist, Chantal Lebert. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Aylan Williams, Patrick Plested, Heather Egger, David Lindenbach, Bernie Perus, Jay Ree, Jillian Vrooman, and Jennifer Ricard. I'm Jennifer, a librarian living in Montreal. I support Canada Land because I'm a librarian. I think it's important to think critically about the media we consume. I would support it even more if you talked more about Quebec. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. There are votes, and then there are votes. Once upon a time, Canada was almost split in two. 
Over 93% of Quebecers showed up to vote in the 1995 referendum, and 49.42% of them voted for sovereignty. That tiny margin of difference, the slightest shift in the public conversation, and history would have taken a different path. Any number of factors might have made the difference, but here's one that obviously turned votes. Just months before the referendum, news broke that Jacques Parizeau, the premier of Quebec, was caught saying on the down low that once Quebecers voted for sovereignty, they would be trapped like lobsters thrown into boiling water. Not a great slogan for the separatist movement. That's what a story like that can do. That's what political journalism can do. It can change history. Now, the journalist who actually broke that story, she would argue with me about that. In fact, she did. Happy Lesser Canadian Thanksgiving, people. Today, we are pulling an episode from the vaults for your holiday listening pleasure. And this one, well, it's uncanny. My conversation with Chantal Hibert, recorded over four years ago when we were heading into the last federal election, well, it is uncanny how much of it applies exactly to our situation today. Some of what you're about to hear has me nodding my head at how true it all still is. And some of it has me shaking my head in frustration. Chantal Hibert has a much more humble, utilitarian view of the role of journalists than I do. I admire her clear-eyed practicality, but when I hear her say, hey, it's not like Canada can make any difference on climate change anyhow, well, I still feel like the frustrated teenager at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Anyhow, here it is. Here she is, my fave of the pundit class, Toronto Star columnist and CBC political panelist, Chantal Hébert. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Aylan Williams, Patrick Plested, Heather Egger, David Lindenbach, Bernie Perusse, Jay Ree, Jillian Vrooman, and Jennifer Ricard. I'm Jennifer, a librarian living in Montreal. I support Canada Land because I'm a librarian. I think it's important to think critically about the media we consume. I would support it even more if you talked more about Quebec. So what is it exactly you want to talk about? I don't know. This may be a terrible test of your patience. Uh, uh, no, you, no, you can't test my patience. I have time to kill. You may think I'm a busy person, but I am not. I, you, you may be just uh, too annoyed after this. I don't don't know. really get annoyed. I can't promise you an informed discussion. I'm not looking for an informed okay. discussion. I'm a very ignorant person when it comes to Canadian politics. I, I'm a very ignorant person in general, so <laughs> we should get along just fine. I'm certainly, I'm ignorant for somebody who covers the Canadian media, but I may even be ignorant of Canadian politics as a Canadian citizen. You probably know more than you think, it like could most be. voters. I take no responsibility for my ignorance. I blame the Canada's political press. Okay. I blame, in part, voters. Yeah. And I say that as someone who spent three long years writing at the end of every story on the Meech Lake Accord. The Meech Lake Accord recognizes Quebec as a distinct society, gives it a veto over Senate reform, says that provinces have to submit names for the Supreme Court. Do you want me to go on? Uh -huh. The five... And after three years, they'll lament, we don't know what's in the Meech Lake Accord. <laughs> right. 
And I figure because I covered it in French, but that's when I started doing stuff in English. Yeah. Most Quebecers knew what was in the Mitch Lake Accord, so I figured we don't know because we didn't care to know for a long, long time. It's the Meech Lake Accord. You've already lost a lot of people right there. Well, when they came out and said, we have found a way to fix the Constitution and have national reconciliation, a hell of a lot of people paid attention, right? That's I, more interesting. I remember Le Devoir's headline that said, uh, uh, it's hard to imagine today when you look at it, but the headline the next day was Canada says yes to Quebec. Yeah. In my lifetime, I saw those headlines. Maybe if not as many people had ended up caring about the Meech Lake Accord, it would have passed. But it became a perception issue. Yes. And you're right on one point. And we're, all, we're not talking about the Meech Lake Accord here. We're talking about ignorance. The people who made that accord, who were premiers and prime minister and leader of the opposition in the case of the federal ones, decided that because they had a deal, they didn't need to explain it. Right. And they left this vacant field to people who didn't like the deal and who could speak the language. Pierre Trudeau, go down the list. By the time they woke up and discovered that since they decided they shouldn't make their case to people, others had made the case for them and it was now a lost cause. It was too late. If only there was some institution in society whose job it was to engage people and inform them about what's going uh, on. Do you want to see the pile of stuff that people uh, who cover uh, politics wrote, talked to normal people, covered Pierre Trudeau, wrote lengthy explanation about every single section of that accord, tried in other ways to show that for Quebecers, yeah, Quebecers are different. Distinct does not mean superior, but you can't deny that there are differences. It's very hard for Quebecers to understand why other Canadians would not know that they are distinct <laughs> and different. There are only so many ways you can say something until you come to the conclusion that in the end, the Canadian elite said yes to Quebec, but the Canadian people in the end said no. I lived in Montreal for 10 years. I, I, I found out that they're distinct, different, and... Uh... It sounds like a no-brainer. So if, you know, the answer is uh, we, we don't think so or we don't, we don't like that you are with yeah. how it was heard. Uh, and in the end, the Meech Lake Accord wasn't a constitutional story. It was a story about how we talk past each other. Yes. And yes, the media has a responsibility for those failures uh, because for a long time... The story that's more exciting takes over from the story that's more constructive. But but are they not the same story? Like, it, it, oh, God. I, I, okay, so I, I I was clicking around trying to find a way into engaging with you today, and I, I had no idea that if not for the journalism you did during the referendum, it sounds to me like there's a good chance the margin was so small. You tell Quebecers that they are actually lobsters about to be boiled. And you could turn a bunch of people off of that referendum. You may have actually played a, a crucial role in keeping this country together. That's interesting. Others would argue that I probably played a crucial role in shoring up sovereignty numbers with my coverage of the constitutional debate. Uh -huh. So uh, at the end of the day, I don't think it works really well for journalists to feel so invested with social responsibility that they self-censor themselves in case they may have contributed to one outcome versus another. Uh, because at that point, you're no longer doing whatever it is you do. That lobster story yeah. uh, 
was the only real brown envelope. They don't exist anymore, I know, but I, I managed to get one real brown envelope in all of my life. Yeah. It landed in the mailbox of La Presse in July when I was alone. I opened it. It was a memo from one civil servant to another at Foreign Affairs, and it said Jacques Pegaso had told the EU ambassadors when he was asked, what if Quebecers vote yes in three months? And then they changed their minds. They decided they don't like it. And he went, ho, 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 uh, it's going to be too late. They're going to be like lobsters in a lobster pot. This is some one of these ambassadors wants a favor from Canada to get a seat on some council somewhere. Yeah. And so there's, the, you know, I'm offering you this tidbit in exchange for you liking me, the civil servant types it. And I kind of looked at it and thought, do I really have to go through this? <laughs> like, I could see what was going to happen if I didn't take that envelope and put it in the trash can. I've had that feeling where you just feel like <laughs> no one knows that I saw this. Do I really want yeah. what's going to be happening for the next... And in the end... It was, I mean, in hindsight, it was, it, it, it's always more fun than when you're in it and you're the person who wakes up with the paper on the doorstep. You see your byline and this, the Quebecois vont comme des homards, and you think, uh huh, this is going to be fun to cover this uh, referendum campaign. I'll, I'll ask you for the translation. Uh, Quebecers will be like uh, lobsters. Yeah. And, it would, I mean, yeah. in the end, we got the story. The, the good thing about the story is instead of going with the story, just, you know, we have a memo from Foreign Affairs. I asked around. I had good connections in those days to the uh, U.S. Embassy. They weren't there, but they had the best connections to anything. And they immediately confirmed that yeah. it had happened. But that wasn't a source. It wasn't on the record. What was great about the story is that in the end, we did have an ambassador on the record. Uh, and the only reason we got that is that uh, Mr. Pegaso's office sent us that ambassador thinking he was going to deny the story. Really? And the Pegaso's office, after a day of screwing around with the, you know, how do we handle this? He had denied it. He sent you well, the diplomat. Pegaso's office eventually got wind of what was happening. Uh huh. Uh, I didn't call them. I called the Bloc Québécois. I figured they're going to call me. If I call the Bloc, the Bloc will call. Jean-François Lisée, who was working then for Jacques Pegaso as a senior advisor, called me up. It was Friday afternoon and explained to me how I would not have a job as of Sunday if I went with the story. We went through the usual, yeah. I'm going to have your job uh, while I'm sorry. And then he says, if I gave you, uh, if, if I could provide you with uh, people who were there, ambassadors, on the record, denying that Mr. Pegaso said this, would you... What would you do? Well, I said, well, I'd certainly, you know, quote them. Mm -hmm. And then he said, it's Friday afternoon. It's very hard to find all these people. It's July. Would you give us till Monday? So I called my bosses and I made the case to them that uh, this is the premier of Quebec. We should probably give him the benefit of the doubt in the, the three days and do the story Tuesday. On Monday, nothing happens for hours. And finally, someone from the, the Belgium embassy calls. He's the Belgian ambassador. And he starts telling me, he said, Jean-François calls called me and he said, and he, and he asked me to call you. And I have to say that I am very sorry that Mr. Pegasus' confidence has been betrayed. 
And I go, uh, excuse me, but you do realize you've just confirmed that Mr. Peso did say that. Oh, yes, he did say that, but he said it in confidence. I never figured out what game Belgium was playing. So Were they playing a game or was this just... I think they were playing a game. I suspect that uh, Jean-Francois called... Uh, uh, and, you know, the ambassadors of the EU had various positions on federalism versus sovereignty. The uh -huh. French ambassador, for instance, I knew would not call me because I knew that he was a federalist sympathizer. Uh -huh. uh, I knew Great Britain would never call. Uh, Holland, because he had... He was the one who had told foreign affairs, couldn't call. Yeah. And so... I assumed over afterwards when I thought about the story that Belgium, the Belgium ambassador probably liked the no side better than the yes side and so decided to confirm it all this time protesting that it was so sad uh, that Mr. Pegizou was betrayed. But the thing is, what I discovered months later when all this was done, says there were ambassadors who said I didn't hear him say that. Yeah. It's because he said that to three of them as they were having cocktails before his speech. I mean, this is just an incredible story. It's, you know, it's one of those, I don't do this kind of journalism anymore. Yeah. But I did enjoy the chase. Yeah. And what you do once you're done. I, I did have a lot of fun doing that. That's, <laughs> that is a part of it that I do miss. And you can't be a columnist and do that because the kind of, Columns, you're right. In the end, the temptation to shore up your own scoops would be too great. And in the end, it's also very hard. At La Presse, I did both. And mm -hmm. one day I was asked, well, I'd written, I'd write a Saturday column. I'd cover news. I was the bureau chief the rest of the week. So I'd written a column that had various sources in it uh, that called for the very short-lived uh, leader of the Bloc Québécois called Michel Gauthier to quit, that he was no Lucien Bouchard, he was his immediate successor. So I you know, I put all that together and I explained what, what Gauthier's problem was. He couldn't speak English. Uh, there were a lot of, of reasons. And mostly he happened to be, sadly for him, the guy who came right after Bouchard. About a week later, Michel Gauthier quits. At that point, I'm wearing my bureau chief clothes of the reporter. I have to go stand in a scrum with, you know, mm -hmm. a look on my face, a neutral look on my face and say, why would you ever resign? So I missed the, the, the finding the story rather than doing the analysis. The opining. I mean, yeah. you got to report a column as well sometimes, but... Yes, but it's not the same. No. And, there, the, you know, you're, it's just not the same. You, the, there, are, there are loads of tricks you learn over the time that you actually cover news that you can't really use as a columnist because it's, it borders on the confusion. In French, we call it confusion des gens. You can't be party and... and uh, an analyst at the same time. And if you, you're breaking news, you are party to a dynamics that is different. I mean, there's all kinds of room for debate there about, uh, you know, yep. if, if we're going to define a news reporter as some sort of impartial, objective robot. I don't, no, I don't think so. But I think a news reporter is someone who, who is more on the lookout for uh, breaking news than a columnist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, be it only because if you're going to find three topics a week, you're actually not spending a hell of a lot of time trying to think of stories to break because you can't be doing everything. Yeah. 
Well, you you are in this world of, of punditry now and uh, yes. analysis, and so you just made the face. This is and this is, I dislike the word pundit intensely. So that's the the face you just made. I'm going to show you because this is actually um, an image that illustrates how I feel when I am watching a lot of punditry. And here we go. Yes, <laughs> I this, never see that. <laughs> I'm not even looking. I've never seen myself on TV. This is a, uh, <laughs> an animated GIF of you at, on the ad issue panel, <laughs> yeah. responding to one of your fellow pundits. Um, the love thing. That's it. I know it's the love thing. I haven't seen it. But I've heard about it. This is an epic eye roll. This is quite. This is just a, such a expression no. of exasperation. I know, and that's how I feel. If I, I only because I have you as my proxy, can I watch this? Because that's how I feel. Yeah, well, don't show me because I I try to work on the face thing. Sometimes I can't help it. Oh, it's wonderful. And in that in that instance, it, uh, I uh, I did. Uh, I heard about it a lot. I was in Vancouver. Yeah. So I heard about it the next day, and. I remember walking out of the hotel thinking, oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, I just told the guy, what's the, you know, what's what does love have to do with political analysis? And then I thought, maybe not love, but sex probably. Yeah. So, and then it got me thinking about all kinds of other dynamics that may explain why Eve Adams and Dimitri Soudas were so important to the liberals. But... Um, when you first, the thing with the at issue panel that's good, but that also makes these faces happen, is you don't know what the others are going to say. Yeah. Since you don't know, sometimes you're not totally Sometimes prepared. you make the accident of being very honest. I'm not very good at the poker face thing, which is why I don't watch myself on TV, because I'd probably not go on TV. <laughs> How would you describe, though, the tenor of the conversation at this moment? Because I feel like there is an assumption being made that I am going to be very interested in politics as sport. And that I'm very interested, and, and, and like any sport, it gets to statistics and dramatics and interpersonal relationships. And it's not necessarily, I find that it's rare to encounter a discussion about politics as something that actually matters to people, that is consequential. It's a mix of both. That's like saying that hockey is about statistics. It's, it's, it's also about feelings mixed in those statistics. There's a hell of a lot of passion in the statistics that hockey lovers come up with. But you got to care about hockey to have those feelings. Do you need to care about political strategy to give a damn about what's happening in Canadian politics? I think that uh, uh, a lot of people actually find politics more interesting when you explain to them what is behind the scenes. It's maybe the opposite of watching a movie where you're not terribly interesting in being in the editing room mm -hmm. because it's going to go on forever. The reactions we get from the panel, uh, of course, people in the chattering class like the panel. I mean, they're mostly political junkies, but many, many people who are not people who go to public policy forum dinners, uh, actually talk to us about the panel. Mm -hmm. For some reason, they seem to think it's more interesting than being explained uh, the intricacies of the equalization formula. Right. Which sounds equally... <laughs> or the budget. Or, or worse. I, it, the, I mean, I met the guy on the ferry today, and he said, so what are you going to talk about tonight? You were already on on Tuesday. He seemed yeah. as excited by the budget as I was. And I said, well, we're going to probably talk about the Ontario budget, because we kind of did the federal one and killed it to death. And he said, you know, he says, I earned... And this guy wasn't one of the lawyers on the ferry. He says, I earn over $100,000, but my kids are in university. My wife doesn't work. 
I don't have $10,000 to put in a, a savings account at the end of any year. Yeah. I thought, well, you know, it seems that this argument that we kind of touched on really briefly, like who's an average person that's got this money left at the end of the year? To yeah. Put uh, it did get true. I yeah. do stuff on Montreal radio and I meet, you know, people on the street. They talk to me about the, the this and I'm there four mornings a week. And when I started in September, I thought they're going to get so sick of my voice. Please don't confuse my, my critique as one that's directed towards specifically the ad issue panel at the National. No, I, no, no. But I find uh, you interesting and I, I, I find Andrew Coyne the same. But there is something that I'm trying to put my finger on when I when I watch Power and Politics. When I watch any of this of the radio, it's it assumes that uh, I am in this world of strategists and pollsters. It assumes that the dynamics between the parties is of uh, primary interest to me. I might be able to engage with that at a certain point, but as a, as a way in, I'm concerned about where I fit into this. I think you're not meant to fit in all of this. If you are watching power and politics, you're probably interested in this stuff. There are Parliament Hill shows. They, you know, the first audience is the Parliament Hill bubble. Yeah. It's not the only audience, uh, but that is where the audience is. If that's, if you don't want all that, I for one don't, really want to hear strategists and MPs give their talking points every single day. So I kind of take a pass and I'd rather, you know, listen to radio to a larger public affairs program than one that is focused on federal politics. Because yeah. at some point, it's like, you know, always drinking the same thing every day for an hour. But because we have all news radio now, all news TV, you can have that and you can have other things. And you can choose not to watch all this, and you can still be well informed uh, about uh, federal politics. So, but I don't think that because everyone is interested in the power and politics kind of stuff means that the people who are interested shouldn't have that show. Sure, sure. I, I mean, let there be uh, many flowers bloom. If you if you're if you're a wonk, there should be wonk shows. But I, I guess. Can we not agree that there is a problem in a country with voter turnout uh, as it is in Canada? Can we not agree that there's a problem when on, along generational lines? We do not have the most enfranchised and engaged and active population. I think part of the reason for that is that we are fortunate enough not to have huge problems. It's easier to be engaged when the government is thinking of joining a war in Iraq that George W. Bush is leading, or when you are having a huge national debate over the death penalty or the right to abortion, or even free trade with the United States, than when your biggest issue is whether it's okay to allow people to put 10000 rather than 5000 a year in the TSFA. But that's not the biggest issue for most people. That's the that's the issue for people who are yes, engaged in the conversation. Over the time that I've covered politics, the issues that consume national governments and public opinion were issues that national governments could actually advance, solve, or make worse. Mm -hmm. But today, the issues that people care about a lot, climate change, uh, the trade-offs between privacy, security, international terrorism, uh, even the global economy and what happens to your job when it gets taken away, they are all issues that don't get resolved on the national stage anymore. You can vote whoever you want tomorrow. Thomas Mulcair or Justin Trudeau or keep Stephen Harper, we will still be having the same debate which will not be completely resolved by a national government. I, 
detail with climate change, no national government, especially of a smaller country, is going to resolve the climate change issue. We can work our way to a system that is more efficient where we do more. But we, I think it's, it's you know, kind of obvious that national governments now need to be thinking alongside other countries rather than national government and provinces. So these days, the prime minister spends more time meeting the president of France than he does meeting the premier of Ontario. That wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Why does that happen? Because the prime minister actually needs to discuss stuff with the president of France that is more relevant to the issues than he would if he sat with the premier of Ontario. But it's resolution may be a tall order. When when we talk about the difference between having a bill like C-51 uh, having a slightly different version of it that the liberals might present or not having it at all, that's a big difference that gets settled on the federal level. Whether or not you have a, a government that is completely in partnership with the oil patch or not is something that gets settled at the federal yes, level. Yes, and the majority of Canadians vote the way they vote, but they, uh, they, they uh, which is against the uh, current government, but then they split their votes between two parties. And then many of them don't vote at all. Well, it's it's... It's a right to not vote if you don't feel engaged. When Quebec had a referendum, 94% showed up to vote. Yes, but, I, uh, but when <laughs> we discussed free trade, uh, more than 80% sure. turned out. So when you give people a choice, they do show up. But if they don't show up, it's because they don't think that there's enough of a choice to make it all worth their while to go vote. Well, it has to do with what people think. And the magic word again is engagement. And then I say, whose job is that? It's uh, certainly not the job of the media to create engagement where issues and politicians don't. Really? I don't think so. I know. I, I don't buy the social mission. Uh, it's my job to report and give as much information as I can in context so that people can make reasoned decisions. But I cannot make the politicians more engaging. I cannot force them to actually talk to people. You can make the issues more engaging. No, I can't. No, I can't. I am not a priest. I don't go on in church on a Sunday to preach this is what should be important to you and this is not. Even if I tried, I would get it wrong. Let me ask you about this because we're talking about what's appropriate for the media. And I think that we are really concerned and there's a real Canadian sense of appropriateness and inappropriateness. So we have Trudeau for months and months and months really hanging back on nailing down any policies. Would it be appropriate for the press to demand that he say something? Uh, alternately, would it be appropriate if Stephen Harper doesn't want to give a solid answer, a firm answer to the question, what did you know about that bribe and when, would it be appropriate for the press to ask him that at every opportunity until they get an answer? Or is that inappropriate for the media? I don't do think it's inappropriate, but I don't think it's particularly efficient. I watched Thomas Mulcair ask that latter question, how many times in the House of Commons and get no answer. So, uh, yeah, sure. So, after uh, he doesn't answer... 60 times, what do I do? I'm not, I can't write a story about the non-answer as everyone understands about the dynamics of what we do. I can't write a story every day yeah. that says the prime minister didn't answer today about what he knew. For the record, though, if Stephen Harper were here, you would say that he answered that he did not know. But that is the answer he gave, that he was in on this deal, that he did not approve it, and that he didn't certainly didn't order it. 
I believe there are some fine grain, uh, incisive follow-ups we, that I think yeah, Andrew Coyne suggested that, for, that have yet yeah, to be Yeah, well, answered. we can all suggest everything. Yeah. Right? I could suggest uh, that uh, someone somewhere is paying Pierre-Carl Pelado to ruin the PQ by yeah. running for it. But, but there, were some, there were some inconsistencies in, in, in what Harper said and when and when he uh, was... Actually, the inconsistencies are on the part of, of Nigel Wright and the email where it says, I ran this by the prime minister. Uh-huh. We need Nigel Wright to say what he meant by this. Uh-huh. That will happen in court. But until it happens, we can't really hunt down Nigel Wright and put a knife to his throat <laughs> and say, you're going to speak to us and you're going to do so today. On the Justin Trudeau thing, I would quarrel with your notion that he has come up with no policies. I, I, I overstated that. And again, I'll, okay, I'll point I you would, back to my admission I, of ignorance <laughs> off the top. No, but he, I mean, uh, he has uh, more of a policy on the way forward for the Senate than uh, Stephen Harper has. Yeah, which... my, my sense is that uh, of, of and for reasons that because strategy is so often spoken of that, uh, I, you know, I'm aware that there was a strategy in, in, in yeah, just that... not being Harper and being who he is and, and saying as little as possible. Possibly, but I, I think... And despite I, that, and despite the fact that the NDP are actually the official opposition, the press seemed to abide that for, for a long period of time. Is that is that a fair characterization? Well, he, I understand that he has a policy on climate change that involves working with the provinces uh, who have different plans. I understand that it's not sexy, but I would yeah. say that it's not realistic if to have a, a different policy. I understand he's not into the carbon tax thing that Stéphane Zion was into. I understand that he has set aside the, the national child care program that is now NDP policy, but used to be liberal policy. But I don't know what people think they're going to get when Justin Trudeau comes up with a policy, because... There's, you know, there, he's not going to be coming up with some radical new way to run the Canadian economy from the federal government standpoint, nor is Mulcair for, the, for, the, for that purpose. So I think I'm kind of discussing a, like a, a shift, a possible shift in the climate of the conversation. You know, some time ago I had Susan Delacourt here and, and um, she, she, you know, argued quite passionately that she's never experienced, I hope I'm paraphrasing her correctly, such a docile time in in uh, the Ottawa press that in every sense from the level of access that uh, the press has denied and has accepted. I've always find the Ottawa press to be docile. Always. I find press galleries in general, not just in the Ottawa. It's not a criticism of, of my colleagues as much as a finding about uh, press galleries in general tend to see the government in power as the government in power forever. And uh, if we're going to describe docility in the press gallery, can we just wind back the clock to Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin's era when no one had a single conservative Canadian alliance name in his or her Rolodex because the liberals were going to be there forever, were they not? And the day that the conservatives come... With Stephen Harper as prime minister, lo and behold, what has happened to all those great liberal contacts? Usually your your colleagues six months before who then switched over to the dark side. And we're going to feed you stories forever because the liberals, were they not going to be there forever? So if we're going to talk about a docile press gallery, can we somehow remember that it wasn't very assertive when the liberals were in power. I don't remember those great challenging stories of 
you know, how the liberals are keeping from us. So when Jean Chrétien visits his riding, we were because we, we they they were nicer. There are two things we're trying to parse here. One is, "Twas ever thus." Is it any different now? And the second part is, "Is it as it should be?" Now, I, I know that it has been argued on this show and elsewhere that we have never had a federal government that has been less open to the press, less available, less True. accessible, less forthcoming. True. And uh, and I think it has hurt them yeah. um, as much as it has hurt the 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 the, the business of covering politics. Uh, but. And I think part of it has to do with the personality of the prime minister, his perception that uh, the, the, the decks are stacked against conservatives, that uh, and that is shaped in part by the great movement between the press gallery and the liberal back offices that was yeah. par for the course. A lot of people went over to the dark side over the liberal years. Sometimes people who had just finished covering election campaigns where they'd covered Stephen Harper rather harshly. So this perception is not totally uh, based on paranoia. Uh, no, he's and, right. I worked at the CBC. No one was trying to do him any favors there. But but it, it is what it is, and it's something that became normalized, and, and the routines changed somewhat. Yes, you know, but, and, and, but you have to take Stephen Harper into the context of the social media era, too. Over this decade in particular, the, the, the rapidity at which information, misinformation circulates, uh, the variety of places where it is has become so intense that governments, by and large, not just Stephen Harper's government, have not found a way to balance uh, the the, the the need to communicate and the need that every government feels to control. Mm -hmm. And so they've retreated behind this wall. Uh, if you can't control what you communicate, you don't communicate. I'm not saying that it's it's the balance. There's a global should, trend in communications yes, throughout the world yes. where why why go through the filter of the press? You don't need to anymore. I understand what he's I doing. I think no, but I think he. I don't buy the why go, not go. I think he needs the filter of the press because he's in the end. I don't buy the notion. I know it's it's an exciting thesis, but I don't think at the end of the day that. Retail politics is the only way to win an election. But dividing what what he does, whether he's right about that or not, with his twenty four seven channel and and, the, and tweeting cabinet shuffles, whether that's a smart strategy or Who not. Who cares if he's tweeting cabinet shuffles? What's the difference between that There's and no giving difference. a press release? No, it, only Thank that you. It, it, it it frees up press resources, perhaps. Yeah, uh, but but in the end, I don't really care. I was getting a press release from a press secretary. That's right. Now I'm getting a tweet. Right. I so think it's a symbolic I'm still gesture getting, of uh, – and if anything, I think well, it, it, it makes our purpose much more I clear. don't insult easily. Yeah. I, I, they're not my friends. They are not there to make my job easy. Well, I don't think it's so much a question of the hurt feelings as much as with every step of removal and as – you know, I mean, the guy doesn't do press conferences. With every step of removal – Shouldn't the press yeah, be I watch, crying bloody murder I'm, or is I'm, that not appropriate? I'm so old that I – in my young age, I got to watch some of those Friday news conferences that Pierre Trudeau used to give. Yeah. Sometimes I walk in a park uh, on the way to buy a baguette in the morning just to make a caricature of my life. And there is a man that feeds pigeons. <laughs> yeah. And it reminds me of those news conferences. I mean, I have not seen any prime minister give regular news conferences that were not to his advantage, mm -hmm. including Brian Mulroney, who used to give more regular ones. I've not seen that. Where I would agree with Susan somewhere yeah. is that 
in the face of a government that really will do nothing for you. It would be nice if the press gallery became more aggressive in looking for stories rather than in against that government, because it's more interesting to dig out stories. And if the press gallery dug out more disturbing stories, I'm not meaning scandals here, but more stories that don't make the government happy about having yes. stories, the government would start keeping the press gallery busier. Yeah. Uh, and that is the dynamics. When I was a really young Parliament Hill person, I was invited, because I was the bureau chief of one, to one of those kind of mediated meetings between the civil service, the mm -hmm. top civil service, and the parliamentary press gallery. And I sat there mute because here I, I'm sitting there. I could be in diapers. And they're all very senior people. Okay. Right? And one of the more senior journalists at the table, who was the bureau chief of a major bureau, told this deputy minister across the table, he says, you know, the way uh, to control a journalist who uh, is good at getting scoops out, the, the best way to control that journalist is to give him or her three scoops a month. And I listened to that. And I was a bit shocked to hear it. And then I thought about it, and it stayed with me. But that is quite true. If you make the government worried about what you may be up to, it's going to go out of its way to keep you busy. Sure, but then they have enemies who are going to go out of their way to make you busy in a different direction, and then maybe you've got some autonomy where you're looking for your own stuff, but that's how it should be. Yes. Right? But, but so, and that's why I'm not big on the, uh, they're not, you know, they don't communicate with no, us. No, I'm not, with the, I'm, I'm want, not arguing the crybaby aspect. You're want, right, they're not on our side. And, I, and, and if uh, the press gallery has less resources, uh, yeah. and newspapers seem to be happy with boring political stories rather than... Well, well, that's an issue right there. Ones. Is it an issue as well as as Susan suggested and as well a recent guest Mark Burry uh, suggested uh, that uh, we become too cozy and there's too many journalists uh, who uh, want to be senators or who are writing speeches? I found are, no evidence that we are cozier than we were. Where, where journalists rub elbows with uh, elected officials? I mean – I find nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying I haven't noticed that. Uh, and I'm uh, not a big Ottawa person. I work out of Montreal. I visit my right. office not often. So I don't have a social life in Ottawa. It's not because I'm pure. Yeah. It's because that's not the life I have. I have kids and stuff and well, you, a, a real life. You've been described as a consummate uh, outsider and that you don't yeah, go well, to the pub to, uh, after work. Well, I don't drink beer. I yeah. had kids to raise. It's not a virtue. I was raising kids and I was a political <laughs> journalist. What do parents do? As soon as they can, yeah. they go feed the kids who are now adults, and now I'm a grandmother, so I yeah. get to babysit instead. But the reason why I'm described as an outsider is nothing to do with the fact that I don't like beer. Or but I there is an inside, and it may be one where, where those worlds have yeah, overlapped. Yeah, but too when much. I started off in, uh, covering politics, was at Queen's Park, and I was working for Radio Canada. Bill Davis was in power. The conservatives in Ontario did not have a lot of uh, gains to make by giving or talking to Radio Canada. Yeah. Francophone is in Ontario, tend to vote Liberal or NDP, uh, and the Conservative Party was considered by the, the least friendly to the Francophone minority in those years, fairly or not. So I could see that, you know, there was some kind of back and fro between the power circles and some other journalists in the press gallery, and I certainly wasn't in the loop because why would you have me in the loop? But I also noticed that I didn't seem to know less 
then people were getting all this. So I came to this early, possibly misguided conclusion that anything like that was spin and that I wanted to live in a spin-free zone. Yeah. And that was that. So the, I the, never the, tried to have contacts. I never called someone to say, spin me. So I know what you're saying. I have the advantage of working in an office at the Star where others have to do stuff like that. So I have a vague sense of what people are actually saying. After a few years, you kind of know from what you hear what the spin probably was. The closer you get, the further you might find yourself. By the same token, I would say to anyone who wants to cover politics that if you don't like politicians, you shouldn't. Because if you can't understand them, you're not going to be able to cover them and understand mm -hmm. what it is that makes them do what they do. Well, while you're giving free advice, I could use some. Be a media <laughs> critic. Well, 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 I'll invite you to be a media critic with me, but I'm actually asking you for free uh, pro bono cons consulting here because we're launching a politics show. We've got a couple of wonderfully intelligent guys hosting it. It's their show. I'm, I'm a consultant myself on this show. What, if anything, is missing from this scene? What's missing from our public conversation? Because I... I he I'm hearing a lot from you that there are good reasons for why things are the way they are, and yet I feel like things could be different and maybe should be. It works best when people cut to the chase or are forced to cut to the chase. Allowing people to give their lines, it's not journalism, uh, and it doesn't serve information to do, to, to do it that way. Not just you, but many people dislike the strategist uh, sitting together are the three. It's kind of a nightmare. It makes a caricature of politics. By the same token, elected politicians who agree to go on shows to mount the party line as if they leave their brains at the door, they demean their own jobs. At some point, if someone could show that, it would probably improve politics and its coverage. You know, we spent a long time on that issue, tearing up our shirts, with a lot of virtue over how the political discourse had become debased and what was happening in the question period was, you know, something you really didn't want to watch because it made you feel bad about politics and actually made you feel bad about what you did for a living having to cover that. And then one day someone, and it wasn't me, and I don't know who it was, had this notion that maybe instead we should show some of it. You know what? It's it's had a lot more impact than all those words we wasted. Mm -hmm. Because the politicians who demean themselves by acting like trained seals do not want to be looking at themselves. It's not news, right? They think they get away with it because we're not going to show it because in the end, there's nothing to show. But when you show that side of politics to viewers... The parroting, the... Yeah, all the, the you know... You the show pack. them being stupid yeah. and insulting each other's intelligence. Yeah. They don't like that. They don't like their family to see that. They don't like their kids to say, that's why you're not there all week to do this. Yeah. And so I figure if you ever do a show on politics, you should show that stuff. Yeah. You should, you should put a price on acting like that, giving a news conference to say nothing, refusing to answer questions much better than asking every day for an answer, showing someone who repeatedly and editing it so that it's, it drives the point, this is what you see, much better than all those words we're using Here's this what afternoon. they said on Monday. Here they are saying it again on Tuesday. Yeah. Here's the next guy saying it yeah. on Wednesday. Yeah. They did it again. We don't, we don't again. have enough time, and we don't do enough of showing that. Yeah. And it works because a normal human person does not like to see himself or herself doing that stuff. So if I had a, pol a politics show, I would create a section of it just to show stuff like that because... 
So it's not a picture, but it's worth a thousand words of punditry that is wasted. Right. Most people can tell when they see something that isn't right. That's your Canada Land. I hope you liked it. If you did, rate it, review it, tell a friend about it. Uh, if you didn't like it, if you did like it, email me about it. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is at canadalandshow.com. Check out a new episode of Oppo this week and also a new episode of Common's terrific series, Dynasties, this week, The Ford Family. Check it out. This episode is produced by our senior producer, Kasia Mihailovich, and by Jordan Cornish. The original episode was produced by me. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, if you like our other shows, if you want ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand and become a CanadaLand supporter. I hope you do. So what is it exactly you want to talk about? I don't know. This may be a terrible test of your patience. Uh, no, you no, know, you can't test my patience. I have time to kill. You may think I'm a busy person, but I am not. I, you, you may be just uh, too annoyed after this. I don't, don't know. really get annoyed. I can't promise you an informed discussion. I'm not looking for an informed discussion. Okay. I'm a very ignorant person when it comes to Canadian politics. I, I'm a very ignorant person in general, so <laughs> we should get along just fine. I'm certainly, I'm ignorant for somebody who covers the Canadian media, but I may even be ignorant of Canadian politics as a Canadian citizen. You probably know more than you think, it like most be. voters. I take no responsibility for my ignorance. I blame the Canada's political press. Okay. I blame in part, voters. Yeah. And I say that as someone who spent three long years writing at the end of every story on the Meech Lake Accord. The Meech Lake Accord recognizes Quebec as a distinct society, gives it a veto over Senate reform, says that provinces have to submit names for the Supreme Court. Do you want me to go on? Uh -huh. The five. And after three years, they'll lament, we don't know what's in the Meech Lake Accord. <laughs> right. And I figure, because I covered it in French, but that's when I started doing stuff in English. Yeah. Most Quebecers knew what was in the Meech Lake Accord, so I figured we don't know because we didn't care to know for a long, long time. It's the Meech Lake Accord. You've already lost a lot of people right there. Well, when they came out and said, we have found a way to fix the Constitution and have national reconciliation... A hell of a lot of people paid attention, right? That's I, more interesting. I remember the Devoir's headline that said, uh, uh, it's hard to imagine today when you look at it, but at the headline the next day was Canada says yes to Quebec. Yeah. In my lifetime, I saw those headlines. Maybe if not as many people had ended up caring about the Meech Lake Accord, it would have passed. But it became a perception issue. Yes. And you're right on one point, and we're, all, we're not talking about the Meech Lake Accord here. We're talking about ignorance. The people who made that accord, who were premiers and prime minister and leader of the opposition, in the case of the federal ones, decided that because they had a deal, they didn't need to explain it. Right. And they left this vacant field to people who didn't like the deal. 
and who could speak the language. Pierre Trudeau, go down the list. By the time they woke up and discovered that since they decided they shouldn't make their case to people, others had made the case for them, and it was now a lost cause. It was too late. If only there was some institution in society whose job it was to engage people and inform them about what's going uh, on. Do you want to see the pile of stuff that people uh, who cover uh, politics wrote, talked to normal people, covered Pierre Trudeau, wrote lengthy explanation about every single section of that accord, tried in other ways to show that for Quebecers, yeah, Quebecers are different. Distinct does not mean superior, but you can't deny that they're different. It's very hard for Quebecers to understand why other Canadians would not know that they're distinct <laughs> and different. There are only so many ways you can say something until you come to the conclusion that in the end, the Canadian elite said yes to Quebec, but the Canadian people in the end said no. I lived in Montreal for 10 years. I, I, I found out that they're distinct, different, and... Uh... It sounds like a no-brainer. So if, you know, the answer is uh, we, we don't think so, or we don't, we don't like that you are, was yeah. how it was heard. Uh, and in the end, the Meech Lake Accord wasn't a constitutional story. It was a story about how we talk past each other. Yes. And yes, the media has a responsibility for those failures, uh, because for a long time... The story that's more exciting takes over from the story that's more constructive. But but are they not the same story? Like, it, it, oh, God. I, I, okay, so I, I I was clicking around trying to find a way into engaging with you today, and I, I had no idea that if not for the journalism you did during the referendum, it sounds to me like there's a good chance the margin was so small. You tell Quebecers that they are actually lobsters about to be boiled, and you could turn a bunch of people off of that referendum, you may have actually played a, a crucial role in keeping this country together. That's interesting. Others would argue that I probably played a crucial role in shoring up sovereignty numbers with my coverage of the constitutional debate. Uh -huh. So uh, at the end of the day, I don't think it works really well for journalists to feel so invested with social responsibility that they self-censor themselves in case they may have contributed to one outcome versus another. Uh, because at that point, you're no longer doing whatever it is you do. That lobster story yeah. uh, was the only real brown envelope. They don't exist anymore, I know. But I, I managed to get one real brown envelope in all of my life. Yeah. It landed in the mailbox of La Presse in July when I was alone. I opened it. It was a memo from one civil servant to another at Foreign Affairs. And it said Jacques Pegasot had told the EU ambassadors when he was asked, what if Quebecers vote yes in three months? And then they changed their minds. They decided they don't like it. And he went, ho, ho, ho. Uh, it's going to be too late. They're going to be like lobsters in a lobster pot. This is some one of these ambassadors wants a favor from Canada to get a seat on some council somewhere. Yeah. And so there's, the, you know, I'm offering you this tidbit in exchange for you liking me, the civil servant types it. And I kind of looked at it and thought, do I really have to go through this? <laughs> like I could see what was going to happen if I didn't take that envelope and put it in the trash can. I've had that feeling where you just feel like <laughs> no one knows that I saw this. Do I really want yeah. what's going to be happening for the next... And in the end, 
It was, I mean, in hindsight, it was, it, it, it's always more fun than when you're in it and you're the person who wakes up with the paper on the doorstep. You see your byline and this, the Quebecois vont comme des homards, and you think, uh-huh, this is going to be fun to cover this uh, referendum campaign. I'll ask you for the translation. Uh, Quebecers will be like uh, lobsters. Yeah. And, it would, I mean, yeah. in the end, we got the story. The, the good thing about the story is instead of going with the story, just, you know, we have a memo from Foreign Affairs. I asked around. I had good connections in those days to the uh, U.S. Embassy. They weren't there, but they had the best connections to anything. And they immediately confirmed that yeah. it had happened. But that wasn't a source. It wasn't on the record. What was great about the story is that in the end, we did have an ambassador on the record. Uh, and the only reason we got that is that uh, Mr. Pegasus' office sent us that ambassador thinking he was going to deny the story. Really? And the Pegasus' office, after a day of screwing around with the, you know, how do we handle this? He had denied it. He sent you well, the diplomat. Pegasus' office eventually got wind of what was happening. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't call them. I called the Bloc Québécois. I figured they're going to call me. If I call the Bloc, the Bloc will call Jean-François Lisée, who was working then for Jacques Pegaso as a senior advisor, called me up. It was Friday afternoon and explained to me how I would not have a job as of Sunday if I went with the story. We went through the usual, yeah. I'm going to have your job uh, while I'm sorry. And then he says, if I gave you, uh, if, if I could provide you with uh, people who were there, ambassadors, on the record, denying that Mr. Pegaso said this, would you... What would you do? Well, I said, well, I'd certainly, you know, quote them. Mm -hmm. And then he said, it's Friday afternoon. It's very hard to find all these people. It's July. Would you give us till Monday? So I called my bosses and I made the case to them that uh, this is the premier of Quebec. We should probably give him the benefit of the doubt in the, the three days and do the story Tuesday. On Monday, nothing happens for hours. And finally, someone from the, the Belgium embassy calls. He's the Belgian ambassador. And he starts telling me, he said, Jean-François calls called me and he said, and he, and he asked me to call you. And I have to say that I am very sorry that Mr. Pegasus' confidence has been betrayed. And I go, uh, excuse me, but you do realize you've just confirmed that Mr. Pezzo did say that. Oh, yes, he did say that, but he said it in confidence. I never figured out what game Belgium was playing. So Were they playing a game or was this just... I think they were playing a game. I suspect that uh, Jean-Francois called the... Uh, uh, and, you know, the ambassadors of the EU had various positions on federalism versus sovereignty. The uh -huh. French ambassador, for instance, I knew would not call me because I knew that he was a federalist sympathizer. Uh-huh. Uh, I knew Great Britain would never call uh, Holland because he had he was the one who had told foreign affairs couldn't call. Yeah, and so I assumed over afterwards when I thought about the story that Belgium, the Belgium ambassador, probably liked the no side better than the yes side, and so decided to confirm it all this time, protesting that it was so sad uh, that Mr. Pegaso was betrayed. But the thing is, what I discovered months later, when all this was done, says there were ambassadors who said, I didn't hear him say that. Yeah. It's because he said that to three of them as they were having cocktails before his speech. I mean, this is just an incredible story. 
that's you know it's one of those I don't do this kind of journalism anymore. Yeah. But I did enjoy the chase. Yeah. And what you do once you're done. It's, I, I did have a lot of fun doing that. That's <laughs> that is a part of it that I do miss. And you can't be a columnist and do that because the kind of columns you write in the end, the temptation to shore up your own scoops would be too great. And in the end, it's also very hard. At La Presse, I did both. And mm -hmm. one day I was asked, well, I'd written, I'd write a Saturday column. I'd cover news. I was the bureau chief the rest of the week. So I'd written a column that had various sources in it uh, that called for the very short-lived uh, leader of the Bloc Québécois called Michel Gauthier to quit, that he was no Lucien Bouchard, he was his immediate successor. So I, you know, I put all that together and I explained what, what Gauthier's problem was. He couldn't speak English. Uh, there were a lot of, of reasons and mostly he happened to be, sadly for him, the guy who came right after Bouchard. About a week later, Michel Gauthier quits. At that point, I'm wearing my bureau chief clothes of the reporter. I have to go stand in a scrum with, you know, mm -hmm. a look on my face, a neutral look on my face and say, why would you ever resign? So I must say the, the finding the story rather than doing the analysis. The opining. I mean, yeah. you got to report a column as well sometimes, but... Yes, but it's not the same. No. And, the, you know, you're, it's just not the same. You, the, there, are, there are loads of tricks you learn over the time that you actually cover news that you can't really use as a columnist because it's, it borders on the confusion. In French, we call it confusion des gens. You can't be party and... and uh, and that analyst at the same time. And if you, you're breaking news, you are party to a dynamics that is different. I mean, there's all kinds of room for debate there about, uh, you know, yep. if, if we're going to define a news reporter as some sort of impartial, objective robot. I don't, and I, know, I don't think so. But I think a news reporter is someone who, who is more on the lookout for uh, breaking news than a columnist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, be it only because if you're going to find three topics a week, you're actually not spending a hell of a lot of time trying to think of stories to break because you can't be doing everything. Yeah. Well, you, you are in this world of, of punditry now and uh, yes. analysis. <laughs> and so you just made the face. This is, and this is, I dislike the word pundit intensely. So that's the, the face you just made. I'm going to show you because this is actually um, an image that illustrates how I feel when I am watching a lot of punditry. And here we go. Yes. <laughs> I this, never see that. <laughs> I'm not even looking. I've never seen myself on TV. This is a, uh, <laughs> an animated GIF of you at, on the ad issue panel <laughs> yeah. responding to one of your fellow pundits. Um, the love thing. That's it. I know it's the love thing. I haven't seen it. I've heard about it. This is an epic eye roll. This is quite. This is just uh, such an expression no. of exasperation. I know, and that's how I feel. If I, I only because I have you as my proxy, can I watch this? Because that's how I feel. Yeah, well, don't show me because I I try to work on the face thing. Sometimes I can't help it. Oh, it's wonderful. And in that in that instance, it, uh, I uh, I did. Uh, I heard about it a lot. I was in Vancouver. Yeah. So I heard about it the next day, and. I remember walking out of the hotel thinking, 
Oh, yeah. Well, of course, you know, I just told the guy, what's the, you know, what's what does love have to do with political analysis? And then I thought, maybe not love, but sex, probably. Yeah. So and then it got me thinking about all kinds of other dynamics that may explain why Eve Adams and Dimitri Soudas were so important to the liberals. But um, when you first the thing with the tissue panel, that's good. But that also makes these faces happen is you don't know what the others are going to say. Yeah. Since you don't know, sometimes you're not totally Sometimes you're, you make the accident of being very honest. <laughs> I'm not very good at the poker face thing, which is why I don't watch myself on TV, because I'd probably not go on TV. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe, though, the tenor of the conversation at this moment? Because I feel like there is an assumption being made that I am going to be very interested in politics as sport. And that I'm very interested, and, and, and like any sport, it gets to statistics and dramatics and interpersonal relationships. And it's not necessarily, I find that it's rare to encounter a discussion about politics as something that actually matters to people, that it's consequential. It's a mix of both. That's like saying that hockey is about statistics. It's, it's, it's also about feelings mixed in those statistics. There's a hell of a lot of passion in the statistics that hockey lovers come up with. But you got to care about hockey to have those feelings. Do you need to care about political strategy to give a damn about what's happening in Canadian politics? I think that the, uh, a lot of people actually find politics more interesting when you explain to them what is behind the scenes. It's maybe the opposite of watching a movie where you're not terribly interesting in being in the editing room mm -hmm. because it's going to go on forever. The reactions we get from the panel, uh, of course, people in the chattering class like the panel. I mean, they're mostly political junkies, but many, many people who are not people who go to public policy forum dinners uh, actually talk to us about the panel. Mm -hmm. For some reason, they seem to think it's more interesting than being explained uh, the intricacies of the equalization formula. Right. Which sounds equally... <laughs> or the budget. Or, or worse. I, the, I mean, I met the guy on the ferry today and he said, so what are you going to talk about tonight? You were already on on Tuesday. He seemed yeah. as excited by the budget as I was. And I said, well, we're going to probably talk about the Ontario budget because we kind of did the federal one and killed it to death. And he said, you know, he says, I earned... And this guy wasn't one of the lawyers on the ferry. He says, I earn over $100,000, but my kids are in university. My wife doesn't work. I don't have $10,000 to put in a, a savings account at the end of any year. Yeah. I thought, well, you know, it seems that this argument that we kind of touched on really briefly, like who's an average person that's got this money left at the end of the year? To yeah. Put uh, it did get true. I yeah. do stuff on Montreal radio and I meet, you know, people on the street, they talk to me about the, the this and I'm there four mornings a week. And when I started in September, I thought they're going to get so sick of my voice. Please don't confuse my, my critique as one that's directed towards specifically the ad issue panel at the National I No, think, no, no. But, I find uh, you interesting and I, I, I find Andrew Coyne the same. But there is something that I'm trying to put my finger on when I when I watch Power and Politics, when I watch any of this at the radio, it's it assumes that uh, I am in this world of strategists and pollsters. It assumes that the dynamics between the parties is of uh, primary interest to me. 
I might be able to engage with that at a certain point, but as a as a way in, I'm concerned about where I fit into this. I think you're not meant to fit in all of this. If you are watching power and politics, you're probably interested in this stuff. There are Parliament Hill shows. They, you know, the first audience is the Parliament Hill bubble. Yeah, and it's not the only audience, uh, but that is where the audience is. If that's if you don't want all that, I for one don't really want to hear strategists and MPs give their talking points every single day. So I kind of take a pass and I'd rather, you know, listen to radio to a larger public affairs program than one that is focused on federal politics. Because at some point, it's like, you know, always drinking the same thing every day for an hour. But because we have all news radio now, all news TV, you can have that and you can have other things. And you can choose not to watch all this, and you can still be well informed uh, about uh, federal politics. So, but I don't think that because everyone is interested in the power and politics kind of stuff means that the people who are interested shouldn't have that show. Sure, sure. I, I mean, let there be uh, many flowers bloom. If you if you're if you're a wonk, there should be wonk shows. But I, I guess. Can we not agree that there is a problem in a country with voter turnout uh, as it is in Canada? Can we not agree that there's a problem when on, along generational lines? We do not have the most enfranchised and engaged and active population. I think part of the reason for that is that we are fortunate enough not to have huge problems. It's easier to be engaged when the government is thinking of joining a war in Iraq that George W. Bush is leading, or when you are having a huge national debate over the death penalty or the right to abortion, or even free trade with the United States, than when your biggest issue is whether it's okay to allow people to put 10,000 rather than 5,000 a year in the TSFA. But that's not the biggest issue for most people. That's the that's the issue for people who are yes, engaged in the conversation. Over the time that I've covered politics, the issues that consume national governments and public opinion were issues that national governments could actually advance, solve, or make worse. Mm-hmm. But today, the issues that people care about a lot, climate change, uh, the trade-offs between privacy, security, international terrorism, uh, even the global economy and what happens to your job when it gets taken away, they are all issues that don't get resolved on the national stage anymore. You can vote whoever you want tomorrow. Thomas Mulcair or Justin Trudeau or keep Stephen Harper, we will still be having the same debate which will not be completely resolved by a national government. Veto with climate change, no national government, especially of a smaller country, is going to resolve the climate change issue. We can work our way to a system that is more efficient where we do more. But we, I think it's, it's you know, kind of obvious that national governments now need to be thinking alongside other countries rather than national government and provinces. So these days, the prime minister spends more time meeting the president of France than he does meeting the premier of Ontario. That wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Why does that happen? Because the prime minister actually needs to discuss stuff with the president of France that is more relevant to the issues than he would if he sat with the premier of Ontario. But it's Resolution may be a tall order when when we talk about the difference between having a bill like C-51 uh, 
having a slightly different version of it that the liberals might present or not having it at all, that's a big difference that gets settled on the federal level. Whether or not you have a, a government that is completely in partnership with the oil patch or not is something that gets settled at the federal yes, level. Yes, and the majority of Canadians vote the way they vote, but they, they, they which is against the current government, but then they split their votes between two parties. And then many of them don't vote at all. Well, it's it's... It's a right to not vote if you don't feel engaged. When Quebec had a referendum, 94% showed up to vote. Yes, but, I, uh, but When we discussed free trade, uh, more than 80% sure. turned out. So when you give people a choice, they do show up. But if they don't show up, it's because they don't think that there's uh, enough of a choice to make it all worth their while to go vote. Well, it has to do with what people think. And the magic word, again, is engagement. And then I say, whose job is that? Uh, certainly not the job of the media to create engagement where issues and politicians don't. Really? I don't think so. I know. I, I don't buy the social mission. Uh, it's my job to report and give as much information as I can in context so that people can make reasoned decisions. But I cannot make the politicians more engaging. I cannot force them to actually talk to people. You can make the issues more engaging. No, I can't. No, I can't. I am not a priest. I don't go on in church on a Sunday to preach this is what should be important to you and this is not. Even if I tried, I would get it wrong. Let me ask you about this because we're talking about what's appropriate for the media. And I think that we are really concerned and there's a real Canadian sense of appropriateness and inappropriateness. So we have Trudeau for months and months and months really hanging back on nailing down any policies. Would it be appropriate for the press to demand that he say something? Uh, alternately, would it be appropriate if Stephen Harper doesn't want to give a solid answer, a firm answer to the question, what did you know about that bribe and when, would it be appropriate for the press to ask him that at every opportunity until they get an answer? Or is that inappropriate for the media? I to don't do that? think it's inappropriate, but I don't think it's particularly efficient. I watched Thomas Mulcair ask that latter question how many times in the House of Commons and get no answer. So, uh, yeah, sure. So, after uh, he doesn't answer, 60 times, what do I do? I'm not, I can't write a story about the non-answer as everyone understands about the dynamics of what we do. I can't write a story every day yeah. that says the prime minister didn't answer today about what he knew. For the record, though, if Stephen Harper were here, he would say that he answered that he did not know. But that is the answer he gave, that he was in on this deal, that he did not approve it, and that he didn't certainly didn't order it. I believe there are some fine-grained, uh, incisive follow-ups that we, I think yeah, Andrew Coyne for, suggested that, for, that have yet yeah, to be Yeah, well, answered. we can all suggest everything, Yeah, <laughs> right? I could suggest uh, that uh, someone somewhere is paying Pierre-Carles Pelladeau to ruin the PQ by yeah. running for it. But, but there, were some, there were some inconsistencies in, in, in what Harper said and when and when he was... Uh, actually, the inconsistencies are on the part of, of Nigel Wright and the email where it says, I ran this by the prime minister. Uh -huh. We need Nigel Wright to say what he meant by this. Uh -huh. That will happen in court. But until it happens, we can't really hunt down Nigel Wright and put a knife to his throat <laughs> and say, you're going to speak to us and you're going to do so today. On the Justin Trudeau thing, I would quarrel with your notion that he has come up with no policies. 
I, I, I overstated that. And again, I'll, okay, I'll point I you would, back to my uh, I, ignorance I, off the top. No, but he, I mean, uh, he has uh, more of a policy on the way forward for the Senate than uh, Stephen Harper has. Yeah, which... my, my sense is that uh, of, of and for reasons that because strategy is so often spoken of that, uh, I, you know, I'm aware that there was a strategy in, in, in yeah, just that... not being Harper and being who he is and, and saying as little as possible. Possibly, but I, I think... And despite that, and despite the fact that the NDP are actually the official opposition, the press seemed to abide that for, for a long period of time. Is that is that a fair characterization? Well, he, I, mean, I understand that he has a policy on climate change that involves working with the provinces uh, who have different plans. I understand that it's not sexy, but I would yeah. say that it's not realistic if to have a, a different policy. I understand he's not into the carbon tax thing that Stéphane Zion was into. I understand that he has set aside the, the national child care program that is now NDP policy, but used to be liberal policy. But I don't know what people think they're going to get when Justin Trudeau comes up with a policy, because... There's, you know, there, he's not going to be coming up with some radical new way to run the Canadian economy from the federal government standpoint, nor is Mulcair for that for for that purpose. So, I think I'm kind of discussing like a, a shift, a possible shift in the climate of the conversation. You know, some time ago I had Susan Delacourt here, and and um, she she you know argued quite passionately that she's never experienced. I hope I'm paraphrasing her correctly. Such a docile time in in the Ottawa press that in every sense from the level of access that uh, the press has denied and has accepted. I've always find the Ottawa press to be docile. Always. I find press galleries in general, not just in the Ottawa, it's not a criticism of, of my colleagues as much as a finding about uh, press galleries in general tend to see the government in power as the government in power forever. And uh, if we're going to describe docility in the press gallery, can we just wind back the clock to Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin's era when no one had a single conservative Canadian alliance name in his or her Rolodex because the liberals were going to be there forever, were they not? And the day that the conservatives come, with Stephen Harper as prime minister, lo and behold, what has happened to all those great liberal contacts? Usually your your colleagues six months before who then switched over to the dark side, and we're going to feed you stories forever because the liberals, were they not going to be there forever? So if we're going to talk about a docile press gallery, can we somehow remember that it wasn't very assertive when the liberals were in power. I don't remember those great challenging stories of, you know, how the liberals are keeping from us. So when Jean Chrétien visits his riding, we were, because we, we, they, they were nicer. There are two things we're trying to parse here. One is, twas ever thus? Is it any different now? And the second part is, is it as it should be? Now, I, I know that it has been argued on this show and elsewhere that we have never had a federal government that has been less open to the press, less available, less True. accessible, less forthcoming. True. And uh, and I think it has hurt them yeah. um, as much as it has hurt the, 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 the business of covering politics. Uh, but And I think part of it has to do with the personality of the prime minister's perception that uh, the, 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 the decks are stacked against conservatives. That uh, And that is shaped in part by the great movement between the press gallery and the liberal back offices 
that was yeah par for the course. A lot of people went over to the dark side over the liberal years. Sometimes people who had just finished covering election campaigns where they'd covered Stephen Harper rather harshly. So his perception is not totally uh, based on paranoia. Uh, no, he's and, right. And I worked at the CBC. No one was trying to do him any favors there. But but it, it is what it is, and it's something that became normalized, and, and the routines changed somewhat. Yes, you know, but, and, and, but you have to take Stephen Harper into the context of the social media era, too. Over this decade in particular, the, the, the rapidity at which information, misinformation circulates, uh, the variety of places where it is has become so intense that governments, by and large, not just Stephen Harper's government, have not found a way to balance uh, the, 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 the need to communicate and the need that every government feels to control. Mm-hmm. And so they've retreated behind this wall. Uh, if you can't control what you communicate, you don't communicate. I'm not saying that it's it's the balance. Well, there's a global should... trend in communications yes. throughout the world yes. where why why go through the filter of the press? You don't need to anymore. I understand what he's I doing. I think no, but I think he. Need, I don't buy the why go, not go. I think he needs the filter of the press because he's in the end. I don't buy the notion. I know it's it's an exciting thesis, but I don't think at the end of the day that retail politics is the only way to win an election. But dividing what what he does, whether he's right about that or not, with his 24-7 channel and, and, the, and tweeting cabinet shuffles, whether that's a smart strategy or Who not. Who cares if he's tweeting cabinet shuffles? What's the difference between that There's and no giving difference. a press release? No, it, only Thank that you. It, 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 it frees up press resources, perhaps. Yeah, uh, but but in the end, I don't really care. I was getting a press release from a press secretary. That's right. Now I'm getting a tweet. Right. I so think it's a symbolic gesture getting, of uh, – and if anything, I think well, it, 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 it makes our purpose much more I don't clear. insult easily. Yeah. I, I don't, they're not my friends. They are not there to make my job easy. Well, I don't think it's so much a question of the hurt feelings as much as with every step of removal and as – you know, I mean, the guy doesn't do press conferences. Uh, with every step of removal – Shouldn't the press yeah, be I cr- watch, crying bloody murder I'm, or is I'm, that not appropriate? I'm so old that I – in my young age, I got to watch some of those Friday news conferences that Pierre Trudeau used to give. Yeah. Sometimes I walk in a park uh, on the way to buy a baguette in the morning just to make a caricature of my life. And there is a man that feeds pigeons. <laughs> yeah. And it reminds me of those news conferences. I mean, I have not seen any prime minister give regular news conferences that were not to his advantage. Mm-hmm. including Brian Mulroney, who used to give more regular ones. I've not seen that. Where I would agree with Susan somewhere yeah. is that in the face of a government that really will do nothing for you, it would be nice if the press gallery became more aggressive in looking for stories rather than in against that government, because it's more interesting to dig out stories. And if the press gallery dug out more disturbing stories, I'm not meaning scandals here, but more stories that don't make the government happy about having stories, the government would start keeping the press gallery busier. Yeah. Uh, And that is the dynamics. When I was a really young Parliament Hill person, I was invited, because I was the bureau chief of one, to one of those kind of mediated meetings between the civil service, the mm-hmm. top civil service, and the parliamentary press gallery. And I sat there mute because here I, I'm sitting there. I could be in diapers. and They're all very senior people. Okay. And, 
And one of the more senior journalists at the table, who was the bureau chief of a major bureau, told this deputy minister across the table, he says, you know, the way uh, to control a journalist who uh, is good at getting scoops out, the, the best way to control that journalist is to give him or her three scoops a month. And I listened to that. And I was a bit shocked to hear it. And then I thought about it, and it stayed with me. But that is quite true. If you make the government worried about what you may be up to, it's going to go out of its way to keep you busy. Sure, but then they have enemies who are going to go out of their way to make you busy in a different direction, and then maybe you've got some autonomy where you're looking for your own stuff. But that's how it should be. Yes. Right. But but so, and that's why I'm not big on the. Uh, they're not. You know, they don't communicate with. No, us I'm not with that. I'm, I'm not want, arguing the crybaby aspect. If you you're want, right. They're not on our side. And I and, and if uh, the press gallery has less resources, uh, yeah. and newspapers seem to be happy with boring political stories rather than. Well, well, that's an issue more right edgy there. Ones. Is it an issue as well as as Susan suggested, and as well my, a recent guest Mark Burry uh, suggested uh, that. Uh, we become too cozy and there's too many journalists uh, who uh, want to be senators or who are writing speeches. I found are... no evidence that we are cozier than we were. Where, where journalists rub elbows with uh, elected officials? I mean – I find nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying I haven't noticed that – and I'm uh, not a big Ottawa person. I work out of Montreal. I visit my right. office not often. So I don't have a social life in Ottawa. It's not because I'm pure – yeah. That's because that's not the life I have. I have kids and stuff and well, you, a, li a real life. You've been described as a consummate uh, outsider and that you don't yeah, go well, to the pub to, uh, after work. Well, I don't drink beer. I yeah. had kids to raise. It's not a virtue. I was raising kids and I was a political <laughs> journalist. What do parents do? As soon as they can, yeah. they go feed the kids who are now adults and now I'm a grandmother, so I get yeah. to babysit instead. But the reason why I'm described as an outsider is nothing to do with the fact that I don't like beer. Or but I there is an inside, and it may be one where, where those worlds have yeah, overlapped. Yeah, but when I started off in, uh, covering politics was at Queen's Park, and I was working for Radio Canada. Bill Davis was in power. The conservatives in Ontario did not have a lot of uh, gains to make by giving or talking to Radio Canada. Yeah. Francophone is in Ontario tend to vote liberal or NDP. Uh, and the Conservative Party was considered by the, the least friendly to the Francophone minority in those years, fairly or not. So I could see that, you know, there was some kind of back and fro between the power circles and some other journalists in the press gallery. And I certainly wasn't in the loop because why would you have me in the loop? But I also noticed that I didn't seem to know less Mm -hmm. Then the people were getting all this. So I came to this early, possibly misguided conclusion that anything like that was spin and that I wanted to live in a spin-free zone. Yeah. And that was that. So the, I the, never the... tried to have contacts. I never called someone to say, spin me. So I know what you're saying. I have the advantage of working in an office at the Star where others have to do stuff like that. So I have a vague sense of what people are actually saying. After a few years, you kind of know from what you hear what the spin probably was. The closer you get, the further you might find yourself. By the same token, I would say to anyone who wants to cover politics that if you don't like politicians, you shouldn't. Because if you can't understand them, you're not going to be able to cover them and understand mm -hmm. what it is that makes them do what they do. 
Well, while you're giving free advice, I could use some. Be a media <laughs> critic. We'll, 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 I'll invite you to be a media critic with me, but I'm actually asking you for free uh, pro bono cons- consulting here because we're launching a politics show. We've got a couple of wonderfully intelligent guys hosting it. It's their show. I'm, I'm a consultant myself on this show. What, if anything, is missing from the scene? What's missing from our public conversation? Because I, I he- I'm hearing a lot from you that there are good reasons for why things are the way they are, and yet I feel like things could be different and maybe should be. It works best when people cut to the chase or are forced to cut to the chase. Allowing people to give their lines, it's not journalism, uh, and it doesn't serve information to do, to, to do it that way. Not just you, but many people dislike the strategist uh, sitting together, the three. It's kind of a nightmare. It makes a caricature of politics. By the same token, elected politicians who agree to go on shows to mount the party line as if they leave their brains at the door, they demean their own jobs. At some point, if someone could show that, it would probably improve politics and its coverage. You know, we spent a long time on that issue, tearing up our shorts with a lot of virtue over how the political discourse had become debased and what was happening in the question period was, you know, something you really didn't want to watch because it made you feel bad about politics and actually made you feel bad about what you did for a living having to cover that. And then one day someone, and it wasn't me, and I don't know who it was, had this notion that maybe instead we should show some of it. You know what? It's it's had a lot more impact than all those words we wasted mm-hmm. because the politicians who demean themselves by acting like trained seals do not want to be looking at themselves. It's not news, right? They think they get away with it because we're not going to show it because in the end, there's nothing to show. But when you show that side of politics to viewers... The parroting, the... Yeah, all the, the you know... You the show pack. them being stupid yeah. and insulting each other's intelligence. Yeah. They don't like that. They don't like their family to see that. They don't like their kids to say, that's why you're not there all week to do this. Yeah. And so I figure if you ever do a show on politics, you should show that stuff. Yeah. You should, you should put a price on acting like that, giving a news conference to say nothing, refusing to answer questions much better than asking every day for an answer, showing someone who repeatedly and editing it so that it's, it drives the point, this is what you see, much better than all those words we're using Here's this what afternoon. they said on Monday. Here they are saying it again on Tuesday. Yeah. Here's the next guy saying it yeah. on Wednesday. Yeah. They did it again. We don't, we don't have enough time, and we don't do enough of showing that. Yeah. And it works because a normal human person does not like to see himself or herself doing that stuff. So if I had a, pol- a politics show, I would create a section of it just to show stuff like that because... So it's not a picture, but it's worth a thousand words of punditry that is wasted. Most people can tell when they see something that isn't right. That's your Canada Land. I hope you liked it. If you did, rate it, review it, tell a friend about it. Uh, If you didn't like it, if you did like it, email me about it. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is at canadalandshow.com. Check out a new episode of Oppo this week and also a new episode of Common's terrific series Dynasties this week, The Ford Family. Check it out. This episode is produced by our senior producer, Kasia Mihailovich, and by Jordan Cornish. The original episode was produced by me. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV. 
101.9 FM in Victoria, visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, if you like our other shows, if you want ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand and become a CanadaLand supporter. I hope you do. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.